makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. This is a voice from Earth. It's good for all of us to be here. You're listening to First Voices Radio and Teokasen Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Esopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus in the lands of the Munsee-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. And you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Our guest today, Philip Kashkash, Ph.D. Cayuse Nespers, produces traditional plateau flutes, that he plays to help teach others about this culturally significant instrument. Philip is an artist, writer, endangered language advocate, and linguistic anthropology scholar. As a fluent Lesper speaker, he works with communities and professional organizations on projects of cultural advocacy, identity, and communication. He's a co-founder of Indigenous Artist and Writer Collective, North Star Collective. Philip serves on the board of the Endangered Language Fund, and Native Voices Endowment. And now, Philip Kashkash. Welcome, Philip. I offer you my heart in a good way that this day is good for all of us who are listening and to be here. Aha, ki talks lahepa, atya tots he was ka kustita inka, hiwe ahopu inim timnach kurnakt ka oikalapa, wakishwit. Ka inim wanikt pitamyanan maksmaks ka kustita soyapotimtki wanikt Philip Kash Kash. And I too give you greetings and open my heart and mind to all the good words today. And welcome and thank you for having me. All right. Thank you, Philip. Um, on January 28th at the High Desert Museum in Bend, Oregon, there's a new exhibit called Creations of Spirit including seven artists, as well as our guest today, Philip Cash, who is an artist, writer, linguistic, 
anthropology scholar. I'm wondering if Philip of the chosen artists and wanting to know what kind of artists featured it and your even your contribution to that, would you be able to tell us about that? Yeah, so I am working as a consultant with the High Desert Museum. And over the course of my work, they had noticed that I would play my flute at prior to all the times when I accessed the collection there. And so through that observation, they knew then that I was a flute artist and maker. And then I was invited then to participate in this art exhibition with my, my flutes. And it was quite a, a, a good occasion for me to have this attention drawn to my art. I've never exhibited my my flutes before, so this is a first for me. Thank you for that. And focus on this message, and I'm going to quote you. You said in the statement, or the opening here is one message I'd like to convey is that just people rethink their relationship to the world. We're not a human being separated from the world. We are a human being among a bigger realm of life. And having a relationship with that bigger realm of life can make our lives stronger and more meaningful. And hopefully that message can be carried to the world with the flute, like you just said, through hearing it and knowing how it's made. And I hope the average person can say, oh, yes, I never thought of it that way. I never, though, I never thought outside of myself to think that maybe the world out there is a part of the process in making the flute or part of the process in hearing what the flute can sound like. That's an awesome statement. Could you expound upon that? Yes, I harvest my flute materials from scratch. Everything that I utilize, I harvest naturally. And I make my flutes out of the elderberry and hollow out the, the limb of a branch that I find is very straight. And But on... Making the flute, though, I take into consideration the time frame and the relationship of myself to the land as well. Uh, so much of the sources for the flute are taken into consideration. For example, I'll harvest the flute in the early spring where the first water comes into the plant and you can then take that energy as a expression to the overall form of the flute. Other times I'll harvest a flute during the later early fall when the elderberry blooms with the fruit and there's an abundance of life present in the flute uh, after I make it during that time frame. So all of these energies from each of the seasons are expressed through the flute form itself and on growing up i used to hear my elders my grandparents talk about you know having a relationship to the world and they said when you make things you speak to the plants and animals by which you gather your materials and you speak to them on a person-to-person -person basis and so when i harvest my flutes i I address them through my language and I tell them, look how strong and beautiful you are. 
And then I asked that their body, when I harvest them, will help me in my life and bring out the life that it has through its making and through then the sound of the flute, then that energy will then go out into the world. And because I honored and respected that life form. Is there any other type of wood you use? If, is Do you find different tones or tonalities? And is there a story for that? I agree with you that elderberry does have a different story. And the way you harvest that in the land that you are near, in, in Oregon, actually the, the trees are a little different species, but yet it's still in a relationship, as you say, with the earth. And as indigenous peoples, we kind of have that background, but your interpretation is in Oregon, whereas mine, it would be in the Black Hills of South Dakota. But yes. the interpretations I have for South Dakota would not necessarily fit what's going on in Oregon. You see where I'm going with that? Yes. The traditional folk plateau form for the flute, uh, meaning that the region within which I live is called the plateau and it has its own unique geography and environment. So the ecology has a, a unique place for, for me and my experience. The elderberry is a part of that, of course. And so I exclusively only make my flutes from the elderberry. And growing up, I had, you know, come to be with my grandparents out in the world, interacting and gathering foods and plants and things of that nature. So I understood the ecology from an early childhood experience and come to appreciate life in that way. But they they would often tell me when you make things, you know, it's your own unique expression. So in that sense, the elderberry is, and my flutes are, are unique to my own work. I don't make, make my flutes out of other wood material. However, I do have flutes that are made from uh, alder wood and cedar and each of those have a really unique intonation, much different from, well, not, I wouldn't say that much different, but different from the, what the elderberry uh, wood can give to the same intonation in the flute. So it it's uh, uh, just my way of making something unique for, for myself and the world. Now, that's very important to understand that for our listeners out there, we're speaking with Philip Cashcash, who is from Bend, Oregon, and part of an exhibition, the High Desert Museum, called Creations of Spirit. And I wanted to know, since you are part of the endangered language, as an advocate of endangered, lang endangered language and linguistic anthropology, a scholar, where do you find anything? See, I, uh, Philip, I don't want to say that we are losing our language. It's not lost. It's just that we have it, we need to remember this and because we were forced to not use it but now that's not there anymore so it's kind of more wide open and not the so-called victimizing of ourselves because of the terminology 
of codifying our native languages to fit the standard of English or Western thought processes? Yes. So I grew up with my grandparents early on in my uh, early childhood and acquired my language through living with them and hearing it on a daily basis. And throughout my life, uh, I thought that that was the norm. And I come to learn later that other peers of my age hadn't had the same experience that I had and they didn't, and subsequently they didn't speak the language. So as I grew older, I understood the value of our language and saw how deeply connected it is to the world. And I later come to uh, come to say, well, I'm going to work on behalf of our languages and study and research. And eventually I acquired my my doctorate in linguistics and in anthropology. And so all of my work now is devoted to the life-giving aspects of our language. And through that, I see how important it is that we, even if one word uh, we know and speak, that one word can really give us imbue our life with meaning and energy and, and healing as well. So I do help with our endangered uh, aspects of our language and I work with language teachers to help them formulate sort of the more natural way of looking at the world and looking at our languages rather than a strictly educational framework. So because our native experience carries with it a lot of different ways of looking at the world and that is what I try to bring out in my work and my research and including you know my own uh, artistic work as well. I'm so glad that you're working in your community, are you not? And and actually the organizations that that you worked with on projects of, uh, what's the word term, cultural advocacy, it seems that's what you do, identity and communication. You've said a little bit about this, but you said you were chosen because of the flute, but I'm sure there's much more of a background there. You have also formed a writer's collective and that you found it, right? And, and what kind of work is, is being done with that? Yes. Yeah, so during the early part of the pandemic uh, several years ago, I and a writer named, a Nest Purse writer, um, Beth Piotto, who's nationally recognized as a, a literary scholar and writer, we had these interchanges with our language and considering future ideas about how to start writing in our language. And we were so taken by the fact that how beautiful and profoundly expressive our language is. And we decided then to invite others and we came to seven members. And over that period of the pandemic, several years, we met every week and from that emerged uh, kind of this word of mouth recognition that what we were doing was to be, um, you know, 
appreciated and recognized. And so we got invitations from various organizations to read and both poetry and stories in the language. And so from that, we've had various outreach to the to various places. More, our most recent uh, outreach was our group went to Chiapas in Mexico and met with the, the writers there, the indigenous writers there and had this creative exchange. And it was a really a profound meeting because there was so much similarity in grasping the deeper meanings of our language and how we then tap into that as a vital resource for our expressivity our creativity and our writing. You described, from what I can read, different uh, artists like Joe Federson and his brother and others that are part of the collective. And I'm, I'm wondering, because Joe Federson makes basket, he's a basket weaver, that, of course, and, and this is a, a, a given, is that the language that you speak or any Native artist or maybe anybody over the world, they're actually putting the energy of the language interpretation within the basket. So there's a lot of ceremony in that basket. This is why these are of value in this, in a metaphorical way, but very spiritual, practical spirituality, because we use these creations as you do the flute to help other human beings, but beyond the anthropocentric view. Is that correct? If I say beyond the anthropocentric view is because we're involving all life and not just a human form. Yes, absolutely. Our, I think a good case can be made where indigenous artists could be recognized for drawing upon different creative sources than, you know, the more broader mainstream artists because they have this relationship with the world that is, you know, of a more deeper part of our native experience. And so they're, they draw upon these life emanating sources for their artworks and their creations. And in using them, they, they activate that same creative emanating life force and like much like in a basket to gather traditional foods, you, you know, put it into your basket or play a flute, the sound goes out to the world. All of these are still, all these objects are still connected to the world in one form or another. So that's what I mean by there's a different idea about where our creativity comes from. Very good to have you here on First Voices Radio, Philip Cash Cash. I like that. Is it really Philip Cash Cash? It, uh, it 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 sounds very musical to say that twice. Yes, it is. It's actually a traditional name uh, from an ancestor named Yich Yich Cash Cash, and it means the speckled pattern on the on a bird, the the bird breast being a speckled uh, pattern, and that bird goes yeech, 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 yeech. That's that falcon that hovers like that. And so that's where our name from. Of course, the English government officials, when they recorded names, all they could hear was cash, cash. 
Yeah, isn't that funny how that's done? So, but so good to see you and being real and your explanations. But but that's almost a given. And and I really would want our young people not to forget these things that you are talking about, you know, your relationships with the, the wood and the relationships with your life and sharing your creations in this exhibition, Creations of a Spirit, but also part of your educational values to life in general. I'd like to just thank you for that. And I think you can find Philip Cash Cash's involvement with highdesertmuseum.org, also finding them on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and search High Desert Museum. But, you know, we could go in deeper, and I'm very much interested in a future interview with you, Philip, is uh, the part about the deepening of the language as, as a linguistic anthropology writer and scholar, actually. And this is very real now. And, and I know the world is searching for, quote-unquote, peace. But as you talk, there is that peace with the earth, and I'm saying in relationship with, and that's what is simple, yet so complex. How do we have peace with Earth? Yes, that's a very, very important point. When we conceived of the art exhibit, the Creations of Spirit, and started looking at how can we develop this idea where there's this profound relationship the artists have who are in the exhibition and we came up with a big opening quote that greets every all the visitors in in the into the exhibition itself and the quote says look at how strong and beautiful you are and that's the expression that many of the artists would say in a prayer when they get, harvest their plants and other materials for their art and so the visitor then is greeted with this prayer-like expression to include them, that they're part of the world too, part of the same creational uh, forces that we, we exist in and are with. And now we're expanding that to include the average visitor. Quite honored to have you here, and thank you for being here, Philip Cash Cash. And it's more or less that we, because of your relationship, we don't see ourselves stagnant with the earth. We see ourselves in rhythm and in motion with the earth because of that language. But when I refer to English, it's like I have to stand in place and not move with like the eagles this morning that flew above me. There were three eagles that flew and there was no words for that because I didn't need words. Yeah. Yeah, just... Being in the world is such a profound experience. It's one of the more simplest and but real life-giving uh, orientation where you acknowledge everything around you and everything then comes alive when you're at peace and centered from within. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices this morning, this afternoon, and tonight. Thank you, Philip Cash Cash, for being you and being here. Doksha Ake Wachinktelo. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You can find out more about Philip Cash Cash, highdesertmuseum.org. Look for High Desert Museum on social media.
that's Philip Cash Cash with Remembrance. Welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Ideas to postpone the end of the world. A little bit about Ailton Cranach, who was born in Brazil, 
renowned indigenous activist and leader. Indigenous peoples have faced the end of the world before. Now humankind is on a collective march towards the abyss. Global pandemics, extreme weather, and massive wildfires define this era, many now called the Anthropocene. Again, Hilton Cronop, who is the author of Ideas to Postpone the End of the World, translated by our next guest. Anthony Doyle was born in Dublin, Ireland, and he has been living in Brazil since 2000, where he works as a freelance translator of fiction and nonfiction. He's the author of the children's book, O Lago Seco, published by Campania de las Trust Company of Letters. And his first novel, Hyperniculum, is due for publication this July throughout of this world press in California. And hypernaculum is hibernation, basically, right? Exactly. It's about human hibernation. All right. But hey, thank you for joining us, Anthony Doyle. Pleasure. From Sao, Sao Paulo, Brazil. I understand that you were the translator of Elton Cranach's Ideas to Postpone the End of the World, a very fast but good read that I have in my hand here. And I wanted to ask you if... You indeed, once you agreed to translate, what you thought about it as you were translating, as you were undoubtedly read in Portuguese, which you translated into English, your thoughts when the thoughts came from Elton's thoughts about indigenous peoples in Brazil and their treatment? Yeah, it is a big question. And actually, since translating the book, a lot of it's become even clearer, especially because of the, the Jair Bolsonaro government and uh, basically the indigenous peoples here were under siege for long periods of time. I, I When I was translating it, I, I began to realize the real day-to-day problems that they face, but also that the ideas that he was putting forward, they're not really, I mean, anybody who goes to this book looking for a how-to list of ways to, to postpone the end of the world, that's not really what it's about. It's more about paradigm shifts, really, and completely different ways of looking at the world to the way we generally do. I found myself realizing, oh, I'm guilty of a lot of the things that he talks about. <laughs> I tend to look at the world sometimes that way, too, and uh, it was quite frightening, actually. What I felt is the need that's needed now for this type of perspective so that thinkers like you and I and that Western-educated process can really look at how we're being educated and what terms we accept to, to keep us from really feeling what Cranach's book, Ideas to the Postponed End of the World, is really saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, he's he's such a very succinct person. He, he has a very poetic style sometimes, but he can also really hit the, the nail on the head. Like when he started talking recently about magical thinking in Western society, the way we we tend to think that the, the water just magically appears in the tap and the products just magically pop up on the, the supermarket shelves and so forth. We don't really know where all of this comes from or what goes into producing it. Um, energy, for example, we, it's, we plug in our appliances and it's there, but we don't really think too much about what goes into generating that energy. And all of this kind of creates a world where we live basically in a magical bubble. And this is something I think that he, he's very clear on, that it's a very dangerous way of thinking. You know, we need to get back to knowing about the headwaters. We need to get back to knowing about the cattle, about everything. Finding new ways, less 
destructive ways to, to, to live. We are reviewing, basically, our author, Hilton Kronach, cannot speak English, so you're translating, in a sense, what he's written. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I want to make that clear. So I know one, one example in the book is a reporter or an anthropologist going to Hopi land in the United States and North America and looking to interview this, this Hopi woman, the guy is talking about the rock. Could you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, again, it's about perceptions. Uh, for, yeah. for, for him, it was a rock. A rock is a rock. Uh, but uh, from another perspective, it could be a relative. Uh, it's like he talks about uh, Watu as well, which is his river, the, the Dosi River, uh, which for him is a person. It's 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 a it's a real being. So hmm. it's another another way of completely looking at uh, at nature, at the physical world. And uh, a lot of the time, we just see things as uh, a mountain is a mountain a resource but uh, for him mountains of names rivers of names personalities rocks can be relatives there's a whole other cosmology going on underneath it that most of the time people aren't aware of mm -hmm. so when you said you were surprised earlier that you are getting more and more out of it and maybe because of this also add i can add this interview to it that it brings out more thought process of Maybe this is how we all really thought one time, but these peoples, the indigenous peoples, are still thinking this way sustainably rather than applying a plan of sustainable development. Oh, well, actually, he talks a lot about, he doesn't like the term sustainability and sustainable development. He, he has serious reservations about it, actually. Um, he once said that... Uh, even the Krenak aren't sustainable because they can't put back everything that they take out. So he's not comfortable when people use sustainability as, a, for example, companies, mining companies producing an annual sustainability report at the end of the year. He's not comfortable at all with that because it's, he feels they're using it a little and it can be dangerous. But um, their way of life, I mean, he, he lives in, he lives near the border with the Spirito Santo state in Minas Gerais state uh, with his people. There aren't many and they have their, their, their area there. They grow basically everything they need. They live very, as we would say, sustainable lives. But for him, it's not sustainable. He doesn't consider it sustainable because he sees what they're taking out. And he, does, he knows that he can't put all of that back in at the end of the day. So again, completely different mindsets. So you can work with me here on this one. So if I think about sustainability in a native thought process, that would mean regenerativity or regeneration thinking. So it's, is that much different than sustainability or is it sustaining the regenerative thinking that's, I would say, encoded within indigenous languages, such as an example, that we don't have a word for nature, uh, even viewing it as a resource, because if we have a view for nature, a word for nature, even a concept for that, that separates us from nature. So we can never say we are nature, but the West often wants to put it in a box or, you know, within that thinking of existence to make nature a resource rather than a source. Exactly, yeah. Um, 
we tend to make resources of everything, I suppose. Yeah, he uses the example of the mountain. The mountain as the as a, as a resource, and I think with what he's concerned about, not not exactly regeneration. That's that can be if you're regenerating properly, that's good. But sometimes with sustainability, you remove some old forest and then you plant eucalyptus trees. That's not exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So he feels, but at the end of the day, maybe that will make the investors feel happy enough. Okay. Oh, they're planting trees. That's fine. But it's not, it's not the same thing. You're not putting back in exactly what you took out. And it's kind of a losing battle, and if, I think he sees this as a losing battle because we can never really put back everything. We can never totally regenerate. <laughs> but um, he doesn't like to see that being used kind of in a cynical, exploited way. Okay. okay. With the ideas of what Black Earth is, I'm sure you heard that term, Black Earth, where the natives... From my understanding, from where I'm from, we regenerate the earth by speaking to the microcosm there at our feet, because we view these as beings, even little cells of plants, insects, the bugs, the viruses, whatnot, that are, are contained within the earth as beings. So we have songs for them. And like anything, if you care for that and you sing your child a song, that child wants to grow. A plant wants to grow. And so when I think about black earth and that process as a term, Western term, black earth, is that that's the richest soil in the world. And when right. we sing songs in that microcosm way that we're really regenerating, that's what I think about regeneration. I don't know your thoughts on that. Um, well, for Ailton, that would probably be exactly what he means, Yeah, what you're saying. And... Um, but uh, for us, for the, the people on the outside looking in, we don't tend to see it. So, you know, regeneration for us is, as you say, sustainability, which is another thing, which is uh, we don't communicate with the earth well <laughs> at all. Uh, we go from our, our air-conditioned rooms to air-conditioned rooms and we get our cars and we travel along the roads. We don't communicate well with the earth at all. This is one of the paradigms that he wants to see, one of the, the ideas, the paradigm shifts that he, he really wants to see happen. Dialogue like this, where do we begin? Where do we go? Is there really going to be an ending and, and much rather desired is a continuum of not this process of life, but these, as you said, a paradigm shift. And I think one of the words, and if you read, have read a book called Auspicing Modernity, and it's by a woman, an indigenous woman out of Brazil, and her name is Vanessa Machado Oliveira. And she, she's, and she writes the book of Facing Humanity's Wrongs and the Implications for Social Activism. So she also talks about this paradigm shift or this change of paradigm but it's not so human-centric as being in the Anthropocene is that we are describing our demise as humans or as humans with the earth. But what we're talking about and think what she's talking about is when we give up Anthropocene, then we see that life is supporting us rather than us trying to sustain her, trying to save the earth, because that's what she's doing already for us. 
Exactly. Yeah, we just need to to, to leave it alone, really. <laughs> so, yeah. Not get in the way. You know, uh, in the book, he talks about the Anthropocene and so forth, and he says that well, we're so terrified that this age is going to end, that this world is going to end, our world. But what we don't realize, he says, is that the world's always been ending since the very beginning. It just keeps on ending. <laughs> I believe it's in the last text in the book. That, and why why are we so afraid of these endings? Why don't we just embrace them and flow with them and, and, and so forth? So the Anthropocene for him, it's okay, it's a chapter, but it will end. Something else will come along and be and will replace it. And uh, we need to, as he says, fall better because we've only been falling since the very beginning, just falling, falling. So we just learn, need to learn how to fall uh, more comfortably more creatively. Anthony, a while back when I started this radio program back in 1992, there was another radio program I joined for a couple of months, radio show. I said, well, think about it this way. Is I, as an indigenous person, was standing on the shore in North America, or Turtle Island, as we call it here in North America, is I, we were standing on the shore and we saw the ships coming. We still have the view from the shore. And from the view from the shore, we are still watching the ships coming. And when are these ships going to end? I think what it is, is that regeneration, I think, of the thoughts that you are now sharing, even by you doing the action of translating this book, are part of that consciousness that's here now. Not just all humans, but some humans. And... I think that the world now has to be, rather than Earth, Earth knows what she's doing all the time, but the world that lives off of Earth as a parasite, and not to mislead anybody, but what I'm saying is the paradigm, even having word for nature, seems to be our mind junk, our mental junk of control. And you're right, the last paragraph says it all, and I'll probably read that. Basically, for most of us, however, the abyss goes by other names, social chaos, generalized misgovernment, loss of quality of life, degraded relationships, and is swallowing us whole. Here's a clincher. We are speaking the denial language, thus hospicing modernity. We don't want it to end. Right. No, and well, hopefully it won't if we if we manage to negotiate it right, <laughs> steer it properly. If we are um, not wanting to end, what's preventing us from allowing it to end in a natural rhythm? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, for Ailton, it's fear, irrational fear. It's uh, we are so stuck in our ways and in our way of looking at the world, what we consider the world to be. We don't want that to change because it's all that we, we know how to exist in now. It's like, mm -hmm. he says, well, take the word riches for a yield. And what does riches mean? Is it is it gold, which he says he was in a conversation with uh, Davi Copanawa, who's another uh, Brazilian indigenous thinker. He's from the Yanomam. And they were talking about gold. And he said, well, gold is something that should be asleep in, in the ground. That's where it belongs. It's a mineral. It should be down there asleep in the ground. But people get worked up about gold. We want gold. We want gold-plated this. We want uh, rings of gold. We want to dig it up and, and use it. So 
for us, the riches, the idea of riches is exploiting this, digging it up, making it into something else. Whereas for him, the riches of gold is that it sleeps in the earth, in its place, in the, which is where it's supposed to be. We don't want gold to end <laughs> because we don't, we use it up. For him, there's no fear of gold ending. Gold just sleeps in the earth like coal should sleep in the earth, like oil should sleep in the earth. We're afraid they'll end because we take them out and use them up. So again, it's, a, it's a, that's our fear, our fear of running out of this, this, this modernity that we've, we've made. People often look in the Western world, they look for solutions. We have conclusions about solutions. Well, if we don't use this and don't use that, or we, you know, so it's this, this stopgap thing. And, and we're not really knowing the consequences of even stopping because the damage is already done, so to speak. And so a group of Native people, other peoples in the world who have the same mindset as Ailton is thinking that, that there is such a thing as post-capitalism. There's such a thing as post, post-colonization, really post-domination, because a lot of Native people like nature don't have the word for nature. There's not a word for domination or a concept for it. Oh, wow. Because if, you, if you're living within, within nature, you need a relational language to speak or communicate with other species of life rather than just the human. And this is the reason why. So we move past domination. There needs not be a conclusion because life continues, as you're, you were talking about the chief of the Yanomami, that life continues no matter what we do to Earth. If we continue to do it this way, in the Western way, of course, we're going to end our lives as humans, but the Earth will survive. If you're within the rhythm of Earth, then you too, as a human being, will survive. And this is my philosophy here. I call it silliosophy is because, is because we have become human doings and because we forgot how to be human beings. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. And human havings as well, which is <laughs> another part of it. Uh, I was reading recently about uh, a mining company that wants to dig up four kilometers down at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, little nodules that are rich in nickel and cobalt and manganese, stuff they use in computer uh, chips and stuff. So they want to send down these massive, massive hoovers that just hoover the tops of the top of the seabed to get these little tiny nodules. And it's such a crazy idea. When you look at it, sometimes you get something to that extreme. You think, well, how crazy an idea is that for someone to want to do that? It's an act of violence, basically. <laughs> Um, but sometimes we even go a little bit too far where we shock ourselves. But Ailton is dealing with uh, mining companies every single day where he lives. Uh, his river, the Dosi River, for example, was, um, I don't know if you heard about a, a, a tailings dam that burst in 2015. And a lot of the mining sludge went into the river. Uh, his river, Watu, as he calls it. It'll take 15 years for that river to regenerate after that disaster. But as he says, you know, if you leave the river alone, the river will regenerate. But for us, 15 years is like a massive time scale. It's, wow, how can we, how can we wait 15 years? But it's, uh, it's really incredible sometimes what we, the lengths we go to to cause trouble. 
lately in California, there's been massive rain downpours and washing away the earth and human beings suffering. And so the, the legislature or the congressperson or the state government comes forward and says, you know what, since all this water is falling now, let's build more dams. <laughs> that's that's their go-to. You see, um, to, to me, that speaks a lacking of understanding what nature really does. And so we're planning to still adapt nature to our needs rather than ourselves adapting to her needs. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I'm interviewing Anthony Doyle, the translator of Ailton Crenock's Ideas to Postpone the, the End of the World. We're, we're both kind of reviewing this and seeing what we can come up with is humankind is on a collective march towards the abyss. Well, what now? What what do we do? You know, what happens? And so people, so many people are afraid of that future that they don't know what to do about it because they're not here. And a friend of mine says, we are speaking a f- present phobic language. And that's why we fear the future. Oh, a present phobic language. Interesting term. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, thank you for, for giving us your thoughts on this book and, and, yeah, I'm very much interested in more. You you got some work coming out yourself. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I have a, a novel, actually. It, it's set a little bit in the future, but it basically imagines a human hibernation technology made available through a special consortium where people can volunteer to hibernate for periods of three, six, nine months even. I wanted to basically, with this novel, explore a a little bit about how a lot of people can't afford to live 365 days a year, don't want to live 365 days a year, or just can't do it at the pace they want to do it at. So they need to detox or to (laughs) whatever. So these facilities, uh, people can basically go there and hibernate for this period of time. It just struck me as kind of symptomatic really of the way things are today are we going to have to hibernate as a way to reduce consumption are we going to have to hibernate as a way to foster job rotation or (laughs) how is it going to work and you know not too far down the line but that's basically what the novel is about it imagines these ideas to postpone the end of the world and thank you for translating and as a friend of Ailton how did you get to know him? What happened here? Well, I was hired by the publisher. And um, then the the publisher in Canada wanted to clarify some things. So I had to discuss some issues with Ailton. So you'll see in the book, there are some footnotes. Some of them are quite long footnotes where <laughs> extra details had to be sort of included. And in the text as well, some some extra information from these conversations I had with Ailton went into those. So I, I got to know him basically on the job. And he's a very important figure down here. He often gives interviews. He's, he's very respected and uh, people listen to him, thankfully. Uh, him and Davi Kopenawa. And there are others coming along now. For example, we have a, a Minister of Indian Affairs, Indigenous Affairs. Her name is Sonia Guajahara, important Indigenous voice coming up in Brazil. So, Really good to talk to you. Thank you for your thought. Perhaps we'll, Thank we'll you very even much look for inviting yeah. me. It was a real pleasure to, to talk to you too. 
And that was translator Anthony Doyle, who was born in Dublin, Ireland, been living in Brazil since 2000, where he works as a freelance translator of fiction and nonfiction. He translated the book, Ideas to Postpone the End of the World. A little bit about Ailton Cranach, who was born in Brazil, renowned indigenous activist and leader, who demonstrates that our current environmental crisis is rooted in society's flawed concept of humanity that human beings are superior to other forms of nature and are justified in exploiting it as we please. To stop environmental disaster, Cranach argues that we must reject the homogenizing effect of this perspective and embrace a new form of dreaming that allows us to regain our place within nature. In ideas to postpone the end of the world, indigenous peoples have faced the end of the world before. Now humankind is on a collective march towards the abyss. Global pandemics, extreme weather, and massive wildfires define this era, many now called the Anthropocene. Again, Hilton Cronop, who is the author of Ideas to Postpone the End of the World. Buffett with the newly released single, Broken Mirrors. You can now hear First Voices Radio on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. This is Teokas and Ghost Tours. Thank you for joining us. Doksha Ake Wachinktelo.